This is Mal Majoris. This is another edition of Radio Soup, and I'm super excited to have PJ English on the show today. I know I had him on another show where uh, that I produced, but this book is great. I was reading The Corporation, an epic story of the Cuban-American underworld, a little bit of it last night. I've been reading it here and there within the last week, and it's just a fascinating tale about the Cuban mafia in America, and I had no idea any of this existed, and I want to introduce TJ English to all of you today. How are you today, TJ? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. So, how did, first of all, how long did it take you to write this book? Because this book is, it's a huge coffee table book. Yes. Well, I get asked that question a lot. I guess the, the quick and easy answer to that is three years. However, most books that I do are based on subject matter that I've had an interest in for many years. And right. in the case of this book, probably for decades at least since the, the last Cuban book I wrote, which was called Havana Nocturne. Right. This book is kind of a sequel to that book. The research from that book also spilled over into this book. So I feel like I've been living with it for a long time. <laughs> well, how did you get like really interested in this? I mean, the Bay of Pigs, everything that happened there. I mean, that's that's a lot of backstory that a lot of Americans probably had no idea what was going on. Yeah, I think a lot for me, a lot of it started in childhood. I was born in late 1957, so I I was too young of a child at the time of the Bay of Pigs invasion to remember it directly. But I do remember the era of Fidel Castro and the tension between the United States and Cuba, tension between the Kennedy administration and Castro. I sort of grew up with that as a dominant issue on the news on a regular basis in the United States. So I was always fascinated with it. And the Cuban story always had kind of a mysterious element to it. There was the revolution, of course, which took place in the late 50s and created this rift with the United States. And there were all these Cubans who fled Cuba and came to the United States and created a Cuban-American culture here in the United States that uh, fascinated me. And then, of course, the anti-Castro-Cuban exile movement in the United States, states, which operated in conjunction with the CIA over a mutual interest of getting rid of Castro and removing a communist government from the island of Cuba. This became a sub-theme of the Cold War, a mandate of the CIA, and they often use Cuban exiles in pursuit of this goal. So this was the the legacy, I guess you would call it the cultural legacy that I grew up with in the United States. So I had an interest about it from early in life. So that must have been close to where you grew up, because I see a lot of a lot of things happen in the book are in New York City and over uh, across across the way in New Jersey and Union City, which, you know, I had no idea that there was such a big Cuban influence in New Jersey. My parents, I think they, they lived in Fort Lee for a time. I don't know if that's close to Union City, but I had no idea that all that happened just across the, I guess it's across the river. Pardon me for not knowing my yeah, geography not, that well, but you know, yeah, I, I, you know, I understand that it's, yeah, I understand that, that it's, they obviously didn't want to get caught by the New York police and they thought, oh, I'll just go over to New Jersey and they won't have as much problems. Well, no, the thinking behind it really was um, Union City, New Jersey in particular, became a destination spot for Cubans leaving Cuba. Um, And on the face of it, it's hard to figure that out because Mm -hmm. Union City, New Jersey is a gritty urban place. It's about as far from a tropical paradise as you can get. 
However, um, Union City has had the highest concentration of Cuban exiles after Miami. Uh, and they came there because there was work there. Union City was known as the embroidery capital of the United States. There were lots of garment factories there. There was work in the garment factory. So that's what drew a generation of Cuban immigrants there. It really had nothing to do with the criminal organization that came later. So it was a convenient base of operation for this racketeering enterprise that eventually developed called the corporation because most of the uh, hierarchy of the corporation lived in in and around Union City, New Jersey. But the operation was based primarily in the five boroughs of New York. That's where the money was made. That's where the clientele was based for uh, what the corporation was up to. And what they were up to, of course, was a, a form of gambling that Latinos mm -hmm. refer to as bolita, but what the rest of us would, would think of as a lottery, basically the illegal lottery. Before lotteries were legalized by states and the federal government, it was they were illegal and it was controlled by organized crime. Hmm. And it was an incredibly profitable racket for organized crime. And uh, the corporation took over this racket because Latinos, it's a deeply rooted cultural tradition for Latinos to bet the number on a daily basis. It's a simple, very simple form of gambling, street-level gambling. Some people refer to it as poor man's gambling. Anyone can partake in it, pretty much. You can bet a nickel, you can bet a dime, or you can bet $10,000. Right. So a lot of people do it on a daily basis, and those nickels and dimes add up, and it was immensely profitable for, for this organization. And, and it's, it's so interesting how the main character in the book, Battle, goes from being the just, I don't know, the guy you meet on the street. I know I was, sometimes it's hard for me to remember everything I read, but just this main guy, and he's just so such a big presence. And he goes to, we'll have to talk about the Bay of Pigs. He does that, and then they offer them the, the military option, and then they can bring their their wives and children over to be citizens. And then he becomes the head of the, the corporation. Yes. Well, he was kind of a legendary figure. He had been a cop in Havana, a vice cop in Havana in the 1950s, mm -hmm. which was the era of the American mobsters in um, in Cuba, Meyer Lansky and Santo Traficante. And he rubbed shoulders with a lot of these people in the 50s, so he had made these underworld connections that he was able to utilize when he got to the U.S. And yes, as you mentioned, he took part in the Bay of Pigs invasion. And for those who don't remember, uh, that was 1961. It was a secret covert invasion authorized by the Kennedy administration. A bunch of Cuban exiles, a brigade of them invaded Cuba. The idea was to invade Cuba and take, take over the island, kill Castro and take back Cuba. And it was a disaster for everyone involved. Castro knew they were coming. A lot of them got killed and those who didn't get killed got Imprisoned. Battle was one of the people who was imprisoned. Eventually, they were released. The Kennedy administration negotiated their release, and they came to the United States. And as you say, Battle joined the army. He was given that option, and then when he left the army, he started. He retraced some of his criminal connections, Santo Traficante, and some mafiosi in New York City, and he formed a partnership with them to begin this organization that would eventually become known as the corporation. 
all that history and um, this uh, legend of having been a, a hero in the Bay of Pigs invasion. And, and you know, if you got started on this book, I devoted the whole first chapter to battle in the Bay of Pigs invasion because I needed to verify whether that story was true that, that he was a hero. I know he said it to people. And right. Thought, story about the Bay of Pigs is just interesting because I mean you know a lot of people don't know and then they, the the Cubans get captured and I find it interesting they they took them all to the Orange Bowl and then they met the president who they felt you know betrayed them but then when they saw you know Mrs. Kennedy they were kind of awestruck by her <laughs> her talking yeah, I, think, I think that was I believe that was a calculated move on the part of the Kennedys to bring Jackie Kennedy when the prisoners were released, they were given a, a, a sort of a parade, and, a, and they all gathered in the Orange Bowl in Miami, and the president and his wife appeared to welcome them back to the United States and to basically acknowledge that they had fought, you know, valiantly, but um, Kennedy felt some guilt. The historical record shows that Kennedy felt some guilt about not having supported the um, when the evasion was taking place, Kennedy wanted to be able to deny that his administration was involved in it. Oh. So he made a series of decisions during the evasion in which he did not back up the brigade, and the brigade got captured and slaughtered, and Kennedy felt guilty about it, felt somewhat responsible, and, and perhaps rightfully so. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of mixed feelings about JFK when he showed up that day. And so they brought they brought Jackie Kennedy, who spoke fluent Spanish, <laughs> and spoke to the men and complimented them on their valor and said that she will tell her son about the bravery of the brigade and she would hope that her son would grow up to be half the man that these men were. Uh, so that mollified the anti-Kennedy sentiment to a certain extent, but not completely. There was always a lot of hostility within the... Uh, those who revered the brigade and the and the Cuban exile community, there was always a, a certain amount of resentment towards uh, President Kennedy. Right now, what's now? Let's go to Kennedy because I know there's there's a lot in this book, but there was some mention of and we'll you know we'll never know who assassinated Kennedy. But do you think, based upon your what you've found, that some of the Cubans were involved at least? to a certain degree in his assassination. Well, I do write about this to, yes. to an extent in the book. I felt obligated to write about it because there is a school of thought amongst uh, Kennedy assassination followers and scholars and whatnot that 
this animosity in the Cuban exile community was part of the brew that stirred stirred up events that would eventually lead to the assassination of JFK. I don't think there's anything definitive on this that would that would prove it in a court of law. Um, however, there's a lot of really interesting circumstantial evidence of players in the anti-Castro movement who were working directly with the CIA. Um, we know they were working directly with the CIA in the CIA's efforts to assassinate Fidel Castro. That has all been revealed in documents that have been declassified and the historical record reveals that quite clearly, that the CIA and the mafia and Cuban exiles were working together in an effort to assassinate Castro in an, uh, a covert operation. It was called Operation Mongoose, and it existed uh, right up until Kennedy was assassinated. Um, there's a number of characters who were sort of key players in that alliance who some people believe may have played a role in the assassination of JFK, and I do go into that, and there's right. a lot of names uh, that get mentioned, and it's it's fascinating history. The reason I felt I had to include it in this book was that many of those people who are named were, in fact, friends and cohorts of Jose Miguel Battles. They had, many of them had fought with, with him alongside him in the Bay of Pigs invasion, Many of them had joined the U.S. military as battle did and were stationed at Fort Benning, Georgia. And so they all kind of knew each other and they all interacted together. And in fact, uh, even after the Kennedy assassination and after battle formed his criminal operation, he never gave up the dream of assassinating Fidel Castro and taking back Cuba. So a lot of the alliances that were laid down in the early 1960s, and a lot of the events that were set in place and continued over the decades that followed, battle was either in a parallel universe to this uh, political history, or mm -hmm. in some cases, he actually financed, you know, gave money to the financing of certain covert operations. And when we talk about covert operations, let me be specific about what the anti-Castro movement entailed over the okay. many decades. It was sort of it was sort of a sub theme of the Cold War. The Cuba was a piece on the chessboard in the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. And so anti Castro Cubans were used by the CIA to do all kinds of covert operations and I mean political assassinations, bombings at embassies and of uh, cars of of ambassadors from countries that were doing business with Cuba, a dirty war, a terrorist okay. war, terrorist actions that were carried out uh, in many cases at the behest or with the knowledge of the, of the CIA. And this lasted for 40 years, probably, from the 60s all the way to the end of the wow. century. So, you know, you, you want to talk about a hidden history or a secret history that the average American wasn't aware of at the time, uh, this was it. This is it. And I was, you know, going to that, I mean, that's, that, that, to me, that's just amazing that all this is happening. And for me, reading about it in the, in your book is probably the first time I've heard of it. And it's very interesting now with 
I don't know if I don't know if our current president has placed any embargoes, but now that Cuba is more open and has been open to the United States, you just wonder since Battle died, you know, ten years ago. I mean, he probably would have loved the fact that his his relatives and possibly even him he himself could have gone to Cuba now without Cast now that Castro has passed away. No. No? Uh, not as long as Cuba is a communist government. Oh, okay. And, uh, I mean, the the idea was to eradicate not just Castro, but to eradicate communism. And so a lot of Cubans are, uh, a lot of the hardline Miami Cubans are still hostile hmm. towards Cuba and always will be unless the, their system of government changes. Oh, that's that's a hard thing to change. But I mean, yes, I, I agree with, you know, battle and everybody. The communism had to go. But you said that you've been to Cuba. It must have been just amazing to go there, like you said, and go to the Bay of Pigs and see everything, because basically Cuba has been in a time capsule. Yes, that's true. And particularly Havana, you know, mm -hmm. look, looks kind of almost like a movie set from the 1950s with the old cars mm -hmm. and not much of the architecture has changed and so it has a feeling of a place that has been lost in time and yeah i've gone there quite a bit over the course of researching these two books now spent a lot of time there it's a fascinating place the historical circumstances of cuba and the relationship between cuba and the united states is very unique mm -hmm. and there's a lot of fascinating stories to be told that come out of this uh, political dynamic of, of this long period of hostility between the U U.S. government and the Cuban government. I make the emphasis on governments there because if you do go to Cuba, you, one of the things you'll find right away is the Cuban people have no ho real hostility towards people from the United States. In oh. fact, they're fascinated to meet American cities and enthusiastic about it. Well, that's interesting. I, I would have thought the exact opposite. No, there's always been a great love, uh, a sort of cultural connection between U.S. citizens and Cubans. In fact, one of the things I dearly love about Cuban culture and, and probably one of the things that drew me to writing these books is my love of Afro-Cuban jazz, Latin jazz <laughs> music. Um, in fact, I'm currently hosting a series at a nightclub here in Manhattan, a Latin jazz series every other Thursday night at this club called Zinc on 3rd Street, right in the heart of Greenwich Village, and uh, I get to pick the music and host the evening, and it's all this great Latin jazz, and Latin jazz, of course, is is a melding of Afro-Cuban music and American jazz, and so that synthesis, that cultural relationship has always been there, and I don't, it doesn't matter what governments do when there's a cultural connection between people. Exactly. That will thrive, and, and that will thrive and, and rise above these political differences. Do you, pl do you play an instrument? Oh, I'm an amateur percussionist. <laughs> I have conga drums and bongo drums around the apartment, and whenever I travel I, to a country, if it's a country that has kind of a percussion history, I'll pick up whatever the local percussion instruments are from that country. So I have a lot, I have tambourines and percussion instruments from Brazil and uh, percussion instruments from Mexico and from, from Cuba. And uh, yeah, I play around my apartment, usually by myself or with a couple friends, um, but 
definitely not of a caliber <laughs> to be playing well, out in public with the kind of musicians that we book for this uh, series that I'm hosting. But at least you have that. That's another international language that you can share with somebody. It's the language of music. Yeah, that is the true international language. I think um, music in general, but and even more specifically, the drum, um, certain rhythm patterns that come from Africa mm-hmm. and form the roots of so much music that we know of, um, jazz, even to an extent rock and roll, you know, blues, funk, all, all this music that's based on a certain kind of rhythm that comes from the drum. Once you tune into that and once you become aware of it and you're able to hear and feel that, those rhythms, it becomes a point of connection with people from other cultures all over the world. That's true. Now let's get back to the book because I got a couple more questions. What, I know this is, I mean, if, if this is a spoiler, I don't want to talk about it, but what led to Battle's downfall and him, you know, his people re- finally realizing that he was this mobster, basically, for lack of a better yes, word? Yes, well, well, to answer that, let me first detail a little bit of, of what he accomplished and, and the scope of this organization. And, you know, it was based on this little gambling enterprise, but that gambling enterprise being so ubiquitous and popular. I mean, there probably were somewhere around, on a daily basis, somewhere around 300 spots around the five boroughs in New York where you could place a bet. Wow. Usually a a three-digit combination uh, that you would bet. And Latinos, as I said, were really into it. There was a whole numerology behind it, a philosophy behind it. A lot of people believe that the answer was to be found in your dreams. You would you go into a bolito betting spot, and the betting spots were usually just a bodega or an auto garage right or front. some mm-hmm. uh, yeah some anonymous working class location. There were no signs or anything. You just were in the know, and you knew where to go place your bet. And um, in in a lot of these bodegas, they had these things called dream books, were little pamphlets that explain how to interpret your dreams in such a way that you could come up with a number combination. Um, for instance, in Latin culture, all, all things and animals and events are, have a number designated to it. So mm-hmm. let's say a dog is number seven, or a cow is number 11, or, or any, any, an, an endless variation of things have numbers assigned to it. And the theory is if you had a dream and there was a cow in your dream that you bet that number. And so betting the number and winning the number is kind of connected to making your dreams come true. And there's there's a lot of numerology to it and a lot of superstition. And it's almost like a religion in the Cuban culture. And very popular. I mean, little old ladies bet the number. The parish priest bets the number. (laughs) Off-duty cops bet the number. Everyone partakes in this activity and so that's a that's a lot of money flowing through this organization on a daily basis tons of money in fact they had counting rooms where they would store the money right and then the money had to be moved from the counting rooms to central location and all of this operated under the auspices of corruption uh, cops were paid off to allow it to take place and not raid and uh, conduct raids uh, politicians got a piece of it. Oh yeah. Local politicians were on the take of the gambling consortiums, and so it was a systemic source of of 
corruption and money, it really became that place where the underworld and the, and the upper world intersect. And that, of course, is the definition of organized crime. Right. And that's what this was. Uh, hugely popular. Battle eventually moves from Union City, New Jersey, down to Miami uh, on a nice estate outside of Miami. And he, he, he and other members of the hierarchy now live down there, but the money is still being made primarily in New York. That's the real bounty uh, where where the money is made, and a lot of it is shipped, literally shipped by couriers from New York down to Miami, cash, huge amounts of cash coming down and being funneled into fake businesses mm-hmm. and offshore bank accounts, and the money has to be laundered. So there's an elaborate money laundering apparatus that grows up around this organization. So it truly does become a corporation, a diversified, multi-leveled corporation. Um, Where it starts to go wrong is at a certain point, battle goes to war with the Italians. For a long time, the relationship with the mafia had been mutually profitable. The, The Italians got their piece of the action, and the Cubans were left alone to run the operation as they saw fit. But somebody violated what was called the two-block rule. The two-block rule was that you could not open up a Bolita location. It had to be more than two blocks away from a pre-existing Bolita location. Uh-huh. Somebody violated this rule. I, to this day, even after all the research I did, I'm not sure who bio, who started it, this war, but uh, a, a war started between the Italians and the Cubans over this two-block rule, and it was an incredibly violent war. It was an arson war. They started firebombing each other's spots in an effort to put them out of business. And these firebombings went back and forth over the course of about 10 months in 1985. And a lot of innocent people people got killed, people who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, that were in a location when a location was firebombed. And it was horrific, and there were many horrible deaths. And the worst of it was in one of these locations, a four-year-old girl was killed who just happened to be there. Right, because some Um, people didn't know about the Bolitas. They just went there to shop or do their laundry or whatever. No, sometimes they they might have been there to place a bet, um, you know, or they might have just been there and had no relation to Bolita at all. Um, This got a lot of attention in the newspapers, and for the first time, Law enforcement started to focus on this thing, this thing called the corporation and what it was. And in fact, there was a presidential hearing. President Ronald Reagan impaneled a big senatorial investigation of. Uh, initially, it was to be about the connection between gambling and organized crime. It wasn't even set up to focus on the Cubans. But then this arson war broke out, just as this. In, um, committee was was being impaneled and so they shifted their focus to the corporation and jose miguel battle and now they were having hearings public hearings and the corporation was outed in a big way and so battle got a level of exposure and heat from law enforcement that he'd never had before at the same time he started to just go off the rails i think he uh maybe it was to an extent of becoming a victim of his own success, the organization being so profitable, you know, a certain amount of greed set in, rivalries within the organization. And Battle himself just became increasingly more violent 
Um, Bolivia was not supposed to be a violent activity. Back in Cuba, it hadn't been. I mean, it was illegal, but it was not violent. It was seen as non. It was seen as a victimless crime, a nonviolent activity mostly. But the corporation turned extremely violent, and uh, Battle had a thing for revenge. If you ever wronged him, he was going to mm-hmm. go to great lengths to get even with you. And so, in the book, there are these epic revenge plots that wind up with somebody being brutally murdered. And there were a lot of these kind of murders that occurred. And, you know, when you bring that level of violence into your activities of your organization, violence begets violence. And really this whole organization started to crumble from within. That's, yeah. And did he ever go to jail? Oh, yeah. He was eventually... Uh, the book details a, a cop by the name of David Shanks, a Miami cop who was one of the first to, to take the concept of the corporation seriously as a as a racketeering enterprise. Mm-hmm. Up till then, people would just say, "Oh, it's it's numbers betting, you know, right, it's harmless." Game. I mean, there's there's narcotics, there's cartels killing people every day. Why would we want to bother with this numbers operation? Uh, they didn't realize that how how violent it was and how many murders there were related to this organization. And this guy, David Shanks, spent close to 20 years off and on investigating this organization. And he was the one that really focused federal law enforcement on the subject to the point where in the late 1990s, they did eventually bring a RICO case, a racketeering case against Jose Miguel Battle and the corporation. And they took the corporation down. You know, uh, it, was, it was almost, you could say, too little, too late. I mean, this, right. this criminal conspiracy had been in place for close to half a century before it was eventually taken down. That's amazing. And, you know, I don't, my parents are from New York, so I guess what I see is you don't mess with the Italians, but I guess you don't mess with the Cubans either. I mean, honestly. Oh, the Italians, the Italians feared the Cubans to a certain extent. Um, you know, they, this, the corporation was probably as powerful as any mafia family. I, I don't mean as powerful as the mafia itself. in total. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the mafia had a f- five-family structure in New York and had families in big cities all around the United States. The corporation did not have that. But the corporation was probably as powerful as any one mafia family. They had, they had hundreds, if not thousands, of members from New York area all the way down to South Florida, and they had total control of this one very lucrative uh, criminal undertaking of of street-level gambling, and that gave them a tremendous amount of power within the overall structure of organized crime. And they were violent, Mm -hmm. and they had this mystique of of somehow being connected to the CIA, you know, a battle having been trained by the CIA for the Bay Pigs invasion. Many other high-ranking members of this organization having a similar history, what I refer to as the Bay of Pigs generation, a whole generation of Cubans who never let go of the the dream of of killing Castro. And many of them did operations in conjunction with the CIA. So out on the street and in the criminal underworld, there was this belief that the corporation somehow was protected by the CIA. And... You know, to a large extent, I believe that was a legend. But on the other hand, this organization, 
you know, stayed in power for, for 40 years. So, um, you know, the mystique, the mystique of the CIA connection was, was strong enough to give this organization a kind of reputation within the underworld that was fearsome. Wow. And speaking of fearsome, this just happened recently. There was a bidding war for your book. Is that correct? For it to make yeah, a movie? Yeah, that happened kind of early. Yeah, that happened early in the process. Yeah. It, um, a, a, some major players got got interested based on the proposal that I wrote for the book. It was a very detailed book proposal, 120 pages or so. It's a very cinematic story. It's oh, it almost is. like The Godfather and one one and two together in some ways, and, and in many ways more interesting because it does have this political context, the aftermath of the Cuban Revolution. Um, so, yeah, that was a natural, but um, I don't envy them in a way because there's a lot of incidents and stories in the story of the corporation. I don't know how they're going to do it in a two-hour movie, so it may wind up being a miniseries or something like that. So are, will you be involved in any way, shape, or form, do you know, with the with the movie? I'm I'm an executive producer Excellent. on it, so I'll have some input, I guess. I'm not the writer on it. They hired a screenwriter okay. already who was, who's been working on it for a while. I mean, there's some major players. Leonardo DiCaprio's company is mm -hmm. one of the producers. Benicio Del Toro is attached to star as Jose Miguel Battle. So, you know, I'll step aside mostly and allow these pros to come in and do their thing. But, of course, I'll be the voice right. in the mix, arguing that they they stick to historical fact as much as possible. Because this is this is a story where you do not have to make up a lot of a lot of things to make it dramatic. It's it, it has a lot of incredible anecdotes and events in it already. It does. It's, it does. I was completely blown away that this whole little, I mean, obviously there's different little subcultures, but this, you know, is is basically things that you should be reading about in your history classes in high school. Yeah, I agree. I think this is uh, this is important history. This, this story is not just kind of a dramatic crime story, but this, the political context of this, the historical context of it is pretty fascinating and important to the trajectory of American history over the last 50 years or so. When do you think they they will start the movie, or have they started production, or just they're in the right the pre-production process right now? Yeah, it's what they call the development process. Oh, development. They're still okay. working on the script. Cool. That's pretty exciting. Have you ever had a movie, uh, a, a book of yours made into a movie before? I've never had one made, but I've had a number of them optioned and right. go through this process of development. Very, very few things that are in, in development actually get made. It's yeah. a very small percentage. So it's it's a long shot, but I think the chances for this one are better with all these big names attached to it. Right. Yeah, DiCaprio. So, and, hope, so you know, I was just saying I'm, I'm hopeful. I think the, uh, the chances of this one are pretty good. Yeah, that's exciting. Well, thank you so much, TJ, for taking time out of your busy schedule. Uh, if people want to get a hold of you or your book, where can they find you? Yes, I'm online, tj-english.com, my website. Lots of information on there. Please check that out. I'm on Facebook. Anyone mm -hmm. can track me down on Facebook and connect with my Facebook page. And, of course, the book you can buy pretty much anywhere. Books are sold 
online on Amazon.com, but I always recommend people go into their local independent bookstore and yes. buy the book there and, and give some business to your local community. So I would recommend going to your favorite bookstore and asking if they have it. They should have it. If and if not, they can order it. Order, order it for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. 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 Well, thank you so much, TJ. I'm going to have this up uh, on my uh, podcast later on today. And this is fascinating, fascinating history. And I really hope it gets at least to be made into a movie because we know how people, sometimes people don't read the book, but once they see a movie, they'll get interested. But I want people to read this book because it's fascinating. Okay, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for your time. Thank you.